Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Jody Magnus. She is Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is a classical archaeologist with degrees from Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the University of Pennsylvania. Her essay, Toilets and Toilet Humor in the Story of Eglon's Murder by Ehud, appeared in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 142, Number 1. This was supposed to be the final episode of 2023, but I've been able to schedule enough new interviews to begin releasing episodes monthly starting the rest of this year and twice a month starting January 2024. The episodes for the remainder of this year are 1 November, Chris Tilling will be answering my questions about Pauline studies. 1 December, Colin Cornell will be answering my questions about deities in the ancient Near East. 2024. 1 January, Ben Witherington III will be answering my questions about apocalyptic literature. 15 January, Todd Linnefelt will be answering my questions on his very short introduction to the Hebrew Bible as literature. 1 February, Yaakov Dolgoposki-Geva will be answering my questions about the book of Joshua. 15 February, Hananel Shapira will be answering my questions about the incense altar in the temple. 1 March, Haley Gabriel will be answering my questions about flesh and spirit in Galatians. And 15 March, Curtis Freeman will be answering my questions about the faith of Jesus Christ in Galatians 2.20. There are more interviews coming, but they're either scheduled and not recorded, or we're still working on the logistics of getting them recorded. I am trying to figure out how far in the future I want things to be scheduled. I'm firmly committed to planning ahead enough that this podcast is released on a consistent schedule. I personally have been listening to podcasts for most of the last 20 years, and I've developed a bit of a pet peeve around unreliable podcast schedules. Once this podcast is on a semi-monthly schedule in January, it will never go back to anything less frequent than that. If anything, I may be banking episodes too far into the future and need to change the pace to three or four episodes each month. If any of those changes happen, I will not go backward. My commitment will be based on an actual reality and actual episodes that I know I've booked or scheduled or recorded. The challenge for me is finding release dates that don't turn interview subjects off and a schedule that doesn't make me feel stressed, because as my tagline says, I have a day job, I also have a family, and I have a commitment to make sure that I'm meeting all the responsibilities that those things bring with them. In November of 2023, I will be attending the Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting. Based on the papers that I hear presented or things that I come across, I may be recording some episodes and releasing them during November that are out of sequence. They won't be numbered along with the other episodes. They'll be special, and they'll just be going over the stuff that I heard. I would like to encourage listeners to join the Society of Biblical Literature. There are dues that you have to pay, but it does give you access to things like, very recently, within the last week, they announced the Society of Biblical Literature Study Bible. So it would be academics writing introductions to New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition Translation of the Bible. It would be 
academics and experts giving the best and most recent scholarly consensus information that's out there. Being able to have access to articles and essays and books and things like this study Bible, I think would be worth the price of the dues. I'll have a link to the website in the show notes for this episode. I also want to plug a couple of podcasts that I've been listening to for the last few months. One, Apocrypals, a podcast in which two non-believers read through the Bible but try not to be jerks about it. And Data Over Dogma. Their tagline is, Bible scholar Dan McClellan and atheist podcaster Dan Beecher team up to increase the public's access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. I've come to think of those two podcasts and this podcast as something of like Mystery Solvers, their buddy podcast. So the Apocrypals are Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg and the other guys in that I think they're both funny. And then the two Dans on Data Over Dogma are like Captain Holt and Jake Peralta or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Because one of them sounds stoic and the other one sounds silly. Whereas I, all by myself, am like Inspector Clouseau. We're all solving the mystery, but anything I get right is purely by accident. Check the show notes and the links for any of the book recommendations that come up in this episode or... Like I said, the link to Society of Biblical Literature. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Jody Magnus. Jody Magnus, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to start out by asking the guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you for inviting me. My name is Jody Magnus. I am the Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism, very long title, in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I've been here for 20 years. And by training, I am an archaeologist. My undergraduate degree is in archaeology and history from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And my PhD is in classical archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania. And I specialize in the archaeology of ancient Palestine, meeting modern Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories in the Roman, Byzantine, and early Islamic period. So basically, we're talking first century BC to, let's say, 9th, 10th centuries AD, something like that. Wonderful. That's quite a CV. And I wish that I could say the reason I reached out was that that (laughs) magnificent CV you have, but it's not. It's that when I got an email from the Society of Biblical Literature saying a new issue of the Journal of Biblical Literature had come out, the title of your article popped out to the 15-year-old who's been inside of me for 25 years now. It is Toilets and Toilet Humor in the Story of Eglon's Murder by Ehud. And uh, I sent you an email that night asking if you would come (laughs) on the podcast. So, okay. Where to begin here? Let's begin with the archaeology, because that's where you begin. Can you give us a rundown of why this story and what is the entryway into the actual hands-on archaeology that you're talking about here? Yeah. As you might have, if you read the article, you might have understood that I had a lot of fun working on it. It was actually a kind of a COVID project. I was working on it through COVID on and off. But... It, my interest actually started with Qumran, with the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, which is a, a site that I've been working on, the art, 
was trying to understand the archaeology of for a very long time. And my interest was sparked in, actually many years ago now when I came across a reference in the field notes of the excavator, Roland DeVoe, to a toilet installation at the site, which basically consisted of a cesspit with a, a sort of a terracotta pipe set into it. And that kind of led me on a, a journey of trying to understand what ancient toilets were like, what the toilet habits of the Qumran sect, the, who I think are Essenes, what their toilet habits were. And then I've just gone on from there. And so what you're looking at here in this JBL article is the culmination, if you wish, of many years of pursuing kind of this line of inquiry. I will parenthetically mention that my grandfather had a plumbing supply store in Philadelphia when I was growing up, and my dad worked in his father's plumbing supply store. And when I first started to get into this subject, my dad was like, I knew she would get into the family business one day. <laughs> but it's a great topic because, of course, it's something that everybody can relate to, right? It's something so human that everybody's interested and everybody wants to know, what did they do back then? As far as the archaeology goes, in the ancient world, and now I'm talking basically the ancient Mediterranean and the Near East, spanning many millennia from the Bronze Age up through the Roman world, we find a variety of ways of, there were a variety of ways to, to relieve yourself when you had to. And now basically I'm focusing on defecation and not urination. And so the most basic way was to just go out anywhere. And the custom of people just relieving themselves anywhere, what we would call today open defecation, existed throughout time. And in fact, when I started to do my research, I came across evidence in Pompeii of graffiti that were written on the, that shopkeepers wrote on the outsides of their shops saying, don't go here. I found Roman legislation, which prohibits open defecation in public spaces and public monuments. So apparently public defecation was something that existed throughout time. But the question is, what then did actual toilet facilities look like? And, and so they varied. So if you were in a house, a private house in the ancient world, and it did not have a toilet facility with it, then your, your choice was to use a, it would be what we would call today a chamber pot. So you would take something like the bottom half of a broken jar or something like that, and you would use it. And then you would empty it into the street. And so the streets and the alleys of cities, towns, villages were filled with human waste. And in fact, there is a wonderful poem by Juvenal that talks about the perils of going down the street at night and having the contents of a chamber pot dumped onto your head. And if you think about a place like Pompeii, for example, or Herculaneum, if you've ever been there, then you know that one of their features is that they have very high sidewalks with very high curbs that are raised above the level of the street. And the curbs are so high that they actually have stepping stones to go across the street. And this was, this was actually a great advancement because pedestrians then could walk along the sidewalks because the streets themselves had the waste thrown into them. Um, most of the cities and towns and villages in the part of the world that I studied didn't have that feature. So literally you would walk through the street 
and there'd be human waste and all sorts of other stuff as well. What did actual toilet facilities look like, permanent built toilet facilities, when houses had them? So in the ancient Near East, by which I mean Mesopotamia, the area of modern Iraq, in the Bronze Age already, there were toilet facilities where basically you'd have a little cubicle where the floor would be would have some sort of water impermeable sealant over it, over the mud bricks. And then there'd be like a little hole or a slit in the floor. And sometimes you find two raised pedestals, like these elongated pedestals on either side of the opening of the floor, which of course, where you would sit, right? Squat, basically. So those are like little squatting pedestals. Less commonly in the in, in ancient Mesopotamia, you find like a built toilet seat over that slit, but usually they just have the squats. And, and those the hole or the slit in the floor would drain into a cesspit, which had, it had these ceramic rings or terracotta rings in it. And the waste would then seep through the sides of the rings into the soil around it. So you had that kind of a cesspit. Or sometimes in Mesopotamia, the waste would be led away by a channel um, into under a wall, under the wall, into the area, the open area or the street outside the structure. And in those cases, what they would do is they would take the rinse water that they would use in the toilet and pour it down into the hole so that the waste would then be washed into the street. And I just mentioned rinse water, and that's because in the ancient world, of course, there was no toilet paper. And so in these kinds of toilet facilities that I'm describing now, like in ancient Mesopotamia, typically you would have a little jug or a bowl with water in it, and you cleaned yourself using your left hand, specifically your left hand. So you would clean your backside with your left hand, and then you would use the rinse water to to clean your hand. Now, when we get to ancient Judea, so the area around Jerusalem, especially in the late Iron Age, so we're now talking like 8th, 7th centuries BC, and then going on from there, what we find are if you have a built toilet facility in a house, it's not exactly the same as what you find in Mesopotamia. Instead, it, it typically consists of a cesspit dug into the floor of a room. Uh, and the cesspit had a stone seat. And there might have been wooden seats that aren't preserved. We wouldn't know. But what's been found are stone seats that are about a half a meter by a half a meter, a block of stone, with a hole cut into the center. And the top of the seat is concave. And these were set over the cesspit. So that's actually a stone toilet seat, right? And we have some of these that have been found in situ in in various contexts around Jerusalem, especially on the southeastern hill of Jerusalem. And DeVoe, the cesspit that he found at Qumran, apparently had a toilet seat like this also. So very interestingly, in ancient Judea, when you have built toilet facilities with a cesspit, the custom was to sit on the toilet rather than to squat. And in Mesopotamia, the custom was more squatting than sitting. And in the Roman world, what we find are something not very dissimilar to what I've just described. When you have toilet built toilet facilities in a house, and this is very common at Pompeii, for example, you have a room, which again has a floor that is covered with something that makes it water resistant. And then you'll have a, a hole in the floor and set over the hole, you have a wooden 
toilet seat. And typically, again, that the waste goes into a cesspit. I know that everybody thinks about the Romans having these great sewage systems, sewers, which they did have, but Roman sewers typically did not drain waste from individual toilet cesspits like that. They were used for um, drainage water that ran in the street. So water, the overflow water from fountains and stuff like that actually carried away waste that was thrown into the streets, that washed into the sewer systems. But individual cesspits in, in houses with toilets those were not connected to the sewage system. And if I can say just a little bit more about uh, about all of this. So you go on as long as go. you like. My philosophy okay. is to mute my mic and let you talk as long as you want. Oh, great. OK, thanks. So in the in 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 pretty much all of these contexts, whether we're talking about Mesopotamia or Judea or or Judah, Judea or the Roman world, when you have these built toilet facilities, these cesspit kind of installations in houses, typically they're in a small cubicle. And that's going to be relevant to the story of Eglon and Ehud. So typically they're in a small cubicle. And in very interestingly, in, in Pompeii, the cubicle with the toilet is typically located next to the kitchen, of all things. And the reason is that the cesspit was used also for the disposal of kitchen waste. All of this kind of highlights that there was no concept of of disease, right, being borne by, by excrement in the ancient world. And in fact, when you have these sorts of cesspit installations, at when the cesspit became filled, what they would do is they would call a manure merchant and he would come and he would empty the cesspit and sell the contents for use as agricultural fertilizer in the fields. So the fields were being fertilized with human waste, which is, by the way, a, something that you still find in some parts of the world today, right? What's called night soil. So even in the Roman world where, you know, which is relatively advanced in many ways, the conditions in terms of hygiene and disease were still pretty bad by today's standards. And I'll just say one more thing about Roman toilets, because most people, if they're familiar with ancient Roman toilets at all, are familiar with the most advanced kind of Roman toilet, which is called a Roman luxury latrine, where typically what you have is a room attached to a bathhouse, usually public bathhouses, but sometimes you find this also in private bathhouses. And in Roman bathhouses, what they would do is they would bring in a constant stream of water by aqueduct, and the water would circulate throughout the rooms in the bathhouse. And then at the end, it would be circulated into the latrine that is attached to the bathhouse. And the latrine would consist of a, a fairly large room that would be open to the sky in the middle, and the sides would be roofed over. And running around the sides, you would have underneath the floor level, a channel that had the water from the, from the bathhouse circulating through it. And then above the channel, a row of stone or wooden seats that were the toilet seats. And there, what you would have is literally a row of toilet seats with as many as up to 60 toilet seats side by side over that underground channel. And the waste then would go down into the channel and the water running through the channel would carry the waste away from the bathhouse. This is a very sophisticated kind of toilet facility. You only find it in cases where you have a constant stream of running water being brought in 
And this again would apply to like the more advanced Roman cities. And at the foot of those seats, there's a like a little channel that goes around. And that channel apparently was used for spillage, but also was used for what the Romans used for toilet paper, which is a sponge on a stick. And so there would be a sponge on a stick next to each one of those toilet seats, which you would then, when you were done, you would put it back into the channel. And so all of this, again, to highlight that even in the most advanced toilet facilities in the ancient world, which are these Roman luxury latrines, obviously hygiene, the modern concept of germs and hygiene and all of that, really, they didn't understand what we understand today. But also, very interestingly, you can see that there's clearly no concept of toilet privacy. And we saw this even with the open defecation, right? So in a Roman luxury latrine, you could have up to 60 people side by side on those seats in the same room. Clearly, this concept of toilet privacy did not exist for the most part in the Roman world. And so our concepts relating to the use of toilets with hygiene, with privacy, it's all that's all very um, modern Western kind of concerns. So that brings up an interesting question, like the cleanliness, the hygiene of it. I spoke with someone in an interview a while back and they were talking about the binaries being established in the creation narrative. And that's what a lot of these cleanliness kind of things are as well is establishing a binary and keeping chaos at bay, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. At one point in the article, you mentioned Babylonians and Assyrians believed in a demon named Sulak. Are there any kind of cultural connections? I know they don't have germ theory, but with the idea that there's uncleanness or there's Sulak who climbs in through the rectum and makes you ill. So it's really interesting. I'm not, I don't know a lot more about the Mesopotamian, Assyrian, Babylonian beliefs in impurity aside from that connection with Sulak, which is really interesting. The way that I got into this was actually sort of from the opposite direction, which is again, Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason is because our ancient sources on the Essenes, both Josephus, but also when you look at scrolls like the War Scroll or the Temple Scroll, indicate that some ancient Jews, including the Essenes apparently, considered defecation and excrement to be impure. That is, defecation is an activity that makes you impure and excrement is is itself impure. And the reason why this is interesting is because rabbinic Judaism rejects that. Um, rabbinic Judaism does not consider excrement to be ritually impure and does not consider defecation to be a ritually polluting activity. The rabbis are concerned with, with shielding yourself when you're defecating from God's view, as that is antithetical to this concept of holiness, but it is not connected with ritual impurity. And so this was how I got into the whole thing. And one of the things that I came across in this, as I was researching this article, so where does this kind of idea come from? And so apparently in ancient Mesopotamia, they believed that there was a demon, Sulak, who inhabited the pits, the cesspits of toilets, and would jump out when somebody was using the toilet, would jump out and enter the individual's anus, right, as they're defecating. And what's so interesting is that his name literally means um, impure hands. 
And so that then got me to wondering, got me back to Qumran, not just because of the impurity, but because of the word hand. And the reason is that both the the first, okay, so both the war scroll and the temple scroll, let me just parenthetically add that many scholars do not consider the temple scroll to be a sectarian work that is a work of the the broader community that inhabited Qumran, Essene, whatever, I think they're Essenes. Okay, that's fine. Doesn't matter. I think we're talking here about some groups, including Essenes in the late Second Temple period, some Jewish groups that did consider, that did associate defecation and excrement with ritual impurity. So that's what I'm concerned about. But anyway, both of those scrolls, the War Scroll and the Temple Scroll, refer to a toilet as the place of the hand, right? So the Temple Scroll says, actually, is it the Temple Scroll is written as if God is commanding. And it says, and you shall make them a place for a hand outside the city to which they shall go out. So it starts like that. So there's been a lot of discussion about this term hand, right? And what it means. And actually in Qumranic Hebrew, hand can also mean penis. But in general, in relation to toilets, the term hand has been understood as meaning a sign or an or a, a a place with a sign that originally may have had a hand on it and this was then understood as being indicating the location of a toilet right now this actually all goes back to Deuteronomy so there's a passage in Deuteronomy where where they're talking about the camps right and it says, so I'm just going to synthesize here and say that the passage says that if a man has a nocturnal emission in the camp, then he needs to go outside the camp and he needs to purify himself, right? And then he can go back into the camp. And that legislation is followed immediately by by a passage which says that when you have to defecate, basically, somebody has to go, what you have to do is go outside the camp and then take a little shovel and dig a pit in the ground with it and relieve yourself and then cover it up and then go back inside the camp. And it says that, that passage says that specifically that this is because this is an activity that needs to be shielded from God's view. And that, by the way, is why the rabbis also, they looked at that passage and they said the same thing. Then, you know, this is something that, that is antithetical to holiness and God shouldn't see it. And so when you go, you should cover yourself up. You shouldn't expose yourself to God. But what happens is that in the, so the question is actually, these two passages are one right after the other. And the rabbis understood the two passages as being separate from each other so that the legislation about a man needing to purify himself after having a nocturnal emission, that's its own separate legislation and does not relate then to the following passage, which talks about when you need to defecate, you need to go outside the camp and do the following. Apparently, the members of the Qumran sect and apparently some other Jewish groups in the late Second Temple period, understood those two successive passages together 
and therefore understood defecation as a ritually polluting activity. And therefore, what we see then is that in the late Second Temple period, there were certain circles of Jews, and in my opinion, these were mostly priestly circles, that that connected these two passages in Deuteronomy, and this then serves as the basis for, for associating defecation and excrement with ritual impurity. But that then gets us back to the term hand, because the passage in Deuteronomy, when it talks about going outside the camp, it actually uses the word hand. And that then takes us back to the, uh, to the Mesopotamian context. And so I actually think that the term hand, when we find it in that passage in Deuteronomy, should be understood as deriving from that ancient Near Eastern context, which associates it with impurity. Um, and that's then how you get this sort of idea that excrement and defecation are connected with ritual impurities. I don't think, therefore, that the term hand originally had anything to do with signage, per se, but rather comes from sort of this idea that there's a demon with impure hands. The hand is impure. You use the hand to wipe yourself when you're done, connected with ritual impurity. I think that's all, you know, where it comes from, what that suggests. Which leads us to Ehud. Ehud, who is, like me, left-handed. Although, I don't know, there may be more to it than, than, than I just write with my left hand. Judges 3. So a section of your article is kind of reevaluating that story. I'll let you speak because it's your article. Okay, so it's it's a long and involved story. This is the period of the judges when when the Israelites were led by these sort of charismatic leaders, and Ehud is one of them. And at this point, they're being oppressed, and and God sends this guy named Ehud, son of Gera, who is a Benjaminite, to save them or whatever. And they were being oppressed by a king of Moab whose name is Eglon. And Eglon itself is actually a really interesting name because it is a name that apparently means fatted calf, right? Egel, Eglon, fatted calf. So there's all sorts of there's all sorts of double entendres and puns in this story. And I'm not necessarily the one who's pointed them out. This has been looked at by a lot of scholars. And so the story goes that that Ehud is goes to goes with Israelites to bring tribute to Eglon, which they were required to do apparently. But when he gets to Eglon, when he gets to the palace or whatever where they're bringing the tribute, Ehud supposedly reports that he has a divine message to give to Eglon, and therefore he needs to meet with him in private. And Eglon's wow, great, okay, a message from a divine message from God. Okay, I want to hear what you have to say. So the story goes that that Ehud goes into a private chamber of some sort to see Eglon. And the there one of the problems with understanding this story is that there's a whole bunch of what are called hapax legomena, which means words that occur only once in the Hebrew Bible, and therefore their exact interpretation is problematic. We don't always know what they mean. 
So he goes into some sort of something that, that a word that could be described as some sort of a chamber to meet with Eglon. And Eglon, when Ehud gets there, sit, stands up thinking he's going to get this divine message. So he stands up and, and Ehud draws out his sword and, and plunges it into Eglon's belly. And the story says that some sort of a secretion, very likely excrement, poured out of Eglon's belly. And actually, the description is that the sword went in so deep that it just, the fat went up to the hilt of the sword. That's actually what it says, went up to the hilt of the sword. And, and all this stuff from his belly poured out. And then what happens is that Ehud escapes. And apparently there were a couple of servants of Eglon's outside the room, right? The doors were closed. They're outside the room and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And all this time goes by and they're, hmm, wonder what's going on in there. And, and they're supposedly talking between themselves. What do you think? Should we go in? Because you don't want to bother the king, right? Should we go in? What's going on? And reportedly, one of the things that they were like, we don't want to, we, we don't really want to go in without notice because what if he's relieving himself? And it's, wait a minute, what's that about? Why would they assume that he was relieving himself if there wasn't a toilet there? That's a little weird, but okay. Finally, they get up the courage, they open the doors and there is Eglon lying dead and Ehud is not there. He's gone. And the story then says, he was already well on his way, a long way away. Uh, and so the there, so this story has been the subject of a lot of discussion by scholars. Most scholars understand it as being a funny satire, parody, some kind of a funny story with a lot of toilet humor. Um, other scholars have already said that, but it, that's not universally accepted. And whether or not the humor is really toilet humor depends on how you understand some of these weird words that occur in it. And so I think that, so in my article, I make suggestions about some of these words that, that I think indicate in fact that the humor is toilet humor, the left-handedness thing, which is interesting, right? So it says that Ehud was left-handed and that apparently is again, a as kind of a pun thing because he's from the type, tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin Benjamin means right hand, son of a right handed. Yamin is right. So I, again, it's a, yeah. I, I was wondering that. I didn't know what that yeah. meant. Benjamin, he's the son of Le Benjamin, literally in Hebrew, Benjamin, the son of the right, right handed, right? And so he's actually left handed. So that's another kind of punny thing in there. You have to understand the Hebrew to get it. And obviously we don't understand all the words necessarily, but, and, and there's all sorts of, I think there's, and, and there's a left, the left-handed thing is also, it's another couple of things, right? So first of all, remember that the left hand was used to clean yourself, wipe yourself after you defecated. So there's that. So usually in the ancient world, you would use the left hand for that purpose and not in your right hand for everything else. And you didn't use your right hand. So first of all, there's that. So that also, there's all this stuff going on in the background. Um, uh, but it also explains how Eglon was able to, sorry, how Ehud was able to hide his sword 
because if he's left-handed, his sword is going to be on the opposite side of his body than most people carried their sword. So he's able to conceal the sword when he gets in because nobody would have been looking for it on the other side of his body because everybody typically used their sword with their right hand. So there's all sorts of stuff that goes on about, about the, the puns and the toilet humor. So one of the things, so one of the problems with understanding the story correctly is trying to reconstruct what the kind of setting is, right? So the setting is probably a palatial setting. Eglon probably is meeting Ehud in his palace. But but the question is how what was the arrangement like? And I don't know if it would help, you you can tell me if it would help for me to actually read parts of the passage so that, you know, I can then, because otherwise I'm just talking yeah. about it in, in a, yeah, is that, that going to, okay, be, so let me see, great. I have it, yeah, I have it here. Okay, so maybe we can just go through it. So it starts out, but when the Israel, this is the NRSV translation, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, and that word actually is sometimes translated differently too, but anyway, a left-handed man. The Israelites sent tribute to him by King Eb to King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he fastened it on his right thigh under his clothes, right? So again, it's on the side of the body that, that nobody would have been expecting. Then he presented the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And there's another a passage a little further on, which, which mentions apparently that the Moabites were known for being overweight, which is interesting. When Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people who carried the tribute on their way, but he himself turned back at the sculpted stones near Gilgal. And there's another pun, because Gilgal, which is actually a spot, shares the same root as in Hebrew as the word for dung which is Galal. So there's a whole nother, there's all sorts of, yeah. And said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the king said silence and all his attendants went out from his presence. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his, and here's one of the, this is one of these problematic terms. He was sitting all alone in his cool roof chamber. Chadar Hamikera. This is one of these words that that everybody, every single person who translates this translates it differently. I actually think that the word Mikera here, which is the word for that's sometimes translated cool roof chamber or something like that, I actually think that it's a word that's referring again to a room with a toilet, because that word, that root, the word of that word Mikera, um, even though you can argue for different roots. One of the possibilities is that it comes from the word kara or keri, which is the same word that occurs in that passage in Deuteronomy that's associated with ritual impurity. So I actually think it's a room with a toilet in it. But anyway, um, there or that there's some that it's associated with a room that has a, a toilet. Okay, so Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, Hadar Mikera and said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Eglon rises from his seat. Now here's a really interesting thing. So in seat, the seat in Hebrew, kisei, it's a seat. But kisei is also a word for a throne. 
But what's very interesting, and that's how it's usually translated, he rose from his throne. He was sitting on his throne. But also we have evidence that in early Judaism, the term for a toilet was kisei, a seat. And if you think about those Judean or Judahite toilets that have the square block, that square block, the toilet seat would have been called a kisei. And in fact, the toilet that was used by, according to the Mishnah, the toilet that was used by the priests in the Jerusalem temple, that toilet facility inside the precinct of the Jerusalem temple underneath it was called Beit Kisei Shalkavod, the house of the seat of honor. And so here, using the word Kisei, so Eglon rises from his Kisei, from his seat, so you could understand it as throne, but there's a double entendre, right? It could also be toilet, the, right? They're, they're laying it on pretty thick. They're laying it on really, really thick. Okay, so he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand. Again, he's left-handed. Took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the dirt, the excrement, whatever it was that was in, inside him, came out. Probably excrement. The word, again, there's a word that is debated about how to translate it, but a lot of scholars translate it excrement, and I think in the context of the story, that makes sense. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule, and close the doors of the roof chamber. So then we get again into this kind of weird word, how to translate it, and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. Now, why would they assume that he must be relieving himself? Again, it doesn't make any sense unless there was a toilet facility in there. So they waited until they were embarrassed. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. There was their Lord dying, lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the sculpted stones and escaped to Seira. So there's a reference here. You may have picked it up. It says the roof chamber, right? So there's a couple of things here. So there's a, a reference to the chamber that he's in, Chadara Mekera, but there's also a reference in this passage in several places to Aliyata Mekera. The now Aliyah in Hebrew means something that goes up, and so a lot of scholars have understood that term as referring to a a chamber on a second story level, and then they posit that Ehud and Eglon's meeting occurred in the room of a second story level, and that if there was a toilet there, that that was at the second story level. And one of the things that I argue in my article is that, in fact, I think there's pretty good evidence for understanding that term aliyah as not just referring to a second story room, but also referring to a ground floor room that either is elevated slightly from its surroundings or has a staircase that leads to a second story level. And this gets me back to the toilets, because in my opinion, if we understand here that the meeting occurred when uh, when Eglon was sitting on the toilet, which is what I think, actually, and that would explain, by the way, why he got up when Ehud comes to see him, 
because kings generally, if he was enthroned, he would have remained seated because kings usually sat in the, and other people had to stand in their presence, right? But if Ehud's sitting on the toilet, then it explains why he would get up when Ehud comes to see him. So I think that what we have here is this arrangement where you have a toilet facility on the ground floor that has a staircase in it providing access to a second story level. And that then explains several things. So first of all, if we have a room with a toilet in it and it's a cesspit, an installation with a stone seat, then that would have had to have been located on the ground floor level because the cesspit would be dug into the ground. You don't have a cesspit at a second story level. If somebody has to go at a second story level, they're going to use a chamber pot. You're not going to have a cesspit kind of a toilet at a second story level. It also explains how Ehud made his getaway. And it's very interesting if you look at the story when the servants finally go into the room and Ehud's gone, they never speculate. Wait, where did he go? Is it magic? Did he just disappear? They never speculate on how he got away. But if we assume that there was a staircase there leading to a second story level, then it's clear that's how Ehud made his getaway. He either got up to the second story level and then went from there to another room and outside the palace, if it's a palace, or if it's a if it's a city gate or something like that, then he got up to the parapet at the roof level or whatever and escaped from there. So that would also solve the problem of how Ehud made his getaway. So the interesting thing is that if you go back and you look, for example, at the Mesopotamian evidence in particular for ancient toilet facilities, a lot of times they're located in a vestibule that is under a staircase that leads to an upper story level. And so I think that this story is describing an arrangement like we see in at some of these sites where you have a toilet in a small vestibule with another little room in front of it. And there's a staircase that goes above the toilet facility and leads to a second story level. The king apparently would have been, the main room would have been outside the toilet vestibule, but attached to the main room, whether it was a throne room or whatever, Attached to that was were two like side-by-side little rooms, the antechamber, and then the vestibule with the toilet itself, right? And then there's the staircase going up from there. So that's how I think we need to envision this. And that's going to lead to what I, I know you were going to ask me about Lachish, right? Is that... So it's so it seems like in the narrative itself, there's some coherence. They're communicating things that like, okay, so they tell us he gets away and that the servants are outside. So there's some kind of coherence, but it seems like to archaeologists, what some of you were probably saying is we don't know this configuration until we find it. Like in, in practical terms, until you find something that is analogous to what you could translate here in the text. You can't say Um, this is realistic. I don't think that, no, not exactly. The problem here, the main problem here again, is that, that some of the key terms that occur in this episode are words that we just, you know, can't, we don't know the exact translation of. And so that makes it very hard, but what's valuable about archeology span and most of the most, I don't even want to say that. I was going to say most of the scholars who have, who have tried to understand this passage are not archaeologists, but that's not actually true. There are scholars who are archaeologists who worked on this passage. But I think that what happens here that's so valuable is if we then do go back and look at 
archaeological evidence of toilets in, let's say, the Bronze Age, Iron Age in the ancient Near East, that this helps us understand some of these sort of obscure elements. And so that's where the story of Lachish comes in, right? That's what, so what happened is that I, I came across this publication of the excavations at Lachish. Lachish is a major biblical tell in Southern Judah or Judea, so south of Jerusalem, that's been excavated by different archeological teams over the course of time. And one of the things that's been excavated is the gateway that led into the city, the gateway from the Iron Age, late Iron Age. So we're talking here, eighth, seven centuries BC. And there are actually two sides to the gate. The gate was a passage that had three chambers on either side of that open passage. And so one one side, the, the rooms on one side of the passage were excavated back in like the 1970s, the late 70s by David Usishkin of Tel Aviv University. And then in 20, I think it was 2015, 2016, two Israeli archeologists with the Israel Antiquities Authority, Igor Kreimerman uh, and Saar Ganor excavated the Southern side, right? Or the, so the other side of it. And, and it was actually the later excavations that identified a room in one of those rooms in the passage of the gateway as a gate shrine. And what they found in this supposed gate shrine is when you go into the room from the passage of the gateway, there's a big part of the room, the main part of the room. And then behind it, at the back of it, is a sort of narrow space, like a vestibule, that's divided into two successive chambers, two little rooms, one one behind the other. And in the back room, they found a pit that had been cut through the floor, and lying inside the pit, they found a stone toilet seat. And they actually did not... So it looks like a toilet. It looks like you have a cesspit of a toilet with the toilet seat having fallen into it, important to note that the site was destroyed afterwards, right? What you have is like collapse and stuff from the destruction. So the on its face, the logical conclusion would be, well, we have a toilet here. <laughs> but that's not what they concluded. They interpreted this as a gate shrine where, where when the site was destroyed, the attackers deliberately desecrated the shrine by throwing the toilet seat into the room. And they identified it as a gate shrine because there's a little stub that projects off of the wall that divides the front part, the big part of the room from the small part in the back. There's a little wall stub that projects into the back part of the room from that wall. And there are impressions in plaster on the top of that wall stub that they thought looked like projections of a four-horned altar. So they thought that they had a double four-horned altar there, two side-by-side -side horned altars, and that this originally then had been a gate shrine that was deliberately desecrated when the site was destroyed. And so this has been the subject of some debate, their identification, I want to say, but, but 
a lot of scholars actually have accepted it, apparently, and in fact, not only accepted it, but suggested that there's a parallel arrangement on the in the chamber on the other side of the gate passage that was excavated by Yusishkin way back when. And looking at the archaeological evidence, I personally think that there's no doubt that it's exactly what it appears to be, which is a toilet, and that the wall, the partition wall, that separates the front, the big front part of the chamber from the two little spaces in the back, the one where the toilet is, that that partition wall was a support for a staircase. And there actually are steps, stone steps that have been found in both chambers, not in situ. But And so it looks like what we have is a kind of an arrangement, which I think also explains the story of Ehud and Eglon, where we had a staircase going up around this support, which is this wall, and would have continued up above the vestibule at the back where the toilet was located. And exactly what you read about in the Mesopotamian parallels, for example. And so I think that if you look at the archaeology in this way, it's very helpful for then understanding the story of Eglon and, um, and Ehud. I think maybe my favorite part of your article is at the beginning of section two, you mentioned the 1979 book motel of mysteries. I I think I probably annoyed some people near me in a restaurant when I was reading it. And I came across that where can you describe what, what you're talking about referencing that book? Yeah. I've, that's a book by that, as you say, it was written by David McCauley who, and I love this book. And I, I came across this book very early in my career and, I've always wanted to like incorporate it somehow, and now I finally had the chance. But basically, what he does is he, in Macaulay, in this book, he parodies the 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 science of archaeology, and it's he has this archaeology Howard Carson. This is obviously based, by the way, on Carter and King Tut's tomb, so very clearly. But what he does is he he takes this. I think it's a 1986 motel that that's destroyed and excavated by archaeologists sometime in the future. And they go into this room and it's all sealed and all of the stuff is still there as it was on the day it was destroyed. And they go in and every single thing in the motel room becomes cultic. This is one of the things that archaeologists often do, right? When we don't understand what something is, we think it's cultic. And so when they finally get to the bathroom, so the bathroom becomes like the inner sanctum of what is there then a shrine of some sort. And in this inner sanctum, every single thing that they find, again, has like, you know, holy significance. And he actually, if you look at the book, he had their illustrations where they show, they show the toilet seat had the, you know how sometimes in, in motels or hotels you find, or they used to do this, I don't know if they still do, but you would find a strip of paper around the toilet that sealed it and said that it was sanitized, right? So the they take that strip and they say, oh, this must have been worn by like the priest or something or the priestess and they have it like tied around the head. And then they take the actual toilet seat and say, oh, this must be like the piece of sacred equipment or something that was put over the head and worn on the body. So they have the toilet seat hanging over the shoulders. So it's great because in this parody, a toilet becomes the inner sanctum of a shrine. And here we have Lachish, which I think actually was a toilet, but 
is interpreted as a shrine. So it was just a wonderful example of kind of life imitating art, right? It's like you said, this is something we all have in common. All of us alive today and all the people who've been alive since forever, we have this in common. And yet when we see it, it's a, we still try to create, I don't know, some kind of distance or specialness for people in the past. I don't want to keep you. I know you, your time is valuable. I like to end by asking if there are, where would you point people? So biblical studies is a pretty, it's a pretty big thing. A lot of disciplines. Where do you think people should go look? Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. You told me you were going to ask me that, but you didn't give me enough <laughs> warning to, to be able to come up with ideas. It really depends on what, it depends on what particular aspect of biblical, biblical studies. That's yeah. Asking me about the history of the world, basically. I can only recommend in my own field, right? Archaeology. So I will just say that not to self-promote, but I have some books that I've written that are at a non-specialist readership. So for example, what I wrote is a textbook, The Archaeology of the Holy Land from the Destruction of Solomon's Temple to the Muslim Conquest. I have a book on the archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Um, Masada. Those are aimed at non-specialist audiences. My website, jodymagnus.org, has links to all of that. But there are other people who also do write and have published widely for a non-specialist audience. And so I'll just highlight Eric Klein, which is spelled C-L-I-N-E, at George Washington University, who's published a number of books that, again, are aimed at a non-specialist audience. I'm really focusing here rather on archaeology instead of biblical studies more broadly, but because that's such a huge field, I don't even know where I would start with that. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely that's fine. I my approach for this podcast is in the first episode in my intro, I just go through the Oxford Handbook on Biblical Studies, and it's <laughs> all of the linguistic, literary, archaeological. It's could be anything. Yes, it's not just theology. It's not just pastoral or devotional concerns. Anybody who might want to learn about Bible or the world that produced different biblical texts. So those are great. I'll have all of that in the show notes for people to find. Do you have anything else for us? And I would also point out, and again, this is not just me, but but another great resource, people, of course, now like to watch videos and things rather than necessarily reading. And so I've produced a couple of great courses one on the Holy Land Revealed, which is archaeology, and the other, Jesus and his Jewish influences, which is basically Jewish history, Second Temple period Jewish history. But in that series of great courses, there are also a lot of courses that are really great on other aspects of of biblical studies. And here I'll mention my colleague, Bart Ehrman, uh, at University of North Carolina, who has produced, I think, Wow, seven, no, eight, eight or nine, something, eight or nine great courses. And he, of course, is a specialist in New Testament and early Christianity. And my other colleague, another one of my colleagues, Joseph Lamb, uh, has just produced a course on creation myths, for example. So if people want, they could look up the great courses. There are all sorts of other courses offered also by other scholars who are really wonderful. 
So that's a terrific resource for people. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time to sit down with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's always fun talking about this topic. I can tell. Okay. Take care. (laughs) You too. I've been told that I need to add something on the end to help people find me on social media. So please look for It Means What It Means on Facebook at facebook.com slash it means what it means podcast or Twitter. Yeah, I still call it that with the handle at means underscore podcast or Instagram at it means what it means pod with each of the words being separated by an underscore. I'm also on spoutable at it means what it means each of the words separated by underscores and blue sky it means what it means dot bsky dot social also please remember you could become a patreon supporter if you go to patreon.com slash it means what it means podcast for the foreseeable future i only have one tier there it's five dollars a month and the benefit of that is You'll get it without so much talking from me on the front end. I'm going to start editing new versions of the intros for the free podcast and for the Patreon podcast. But also, as soon as I get episodes edited, I dump them on there. There is no schedule for now. If at some point I start making ad revenue off the free episodes, that may be the distinction and episodes on Patreon will come out on a schedule. But for now... They come out as soon as I get them edited. At the moment of recording this, I am behind by three episodes, but rest assured, I generally get them edited pretty quickly. So please look for us on social media. Reach out. Let me know if there are guests that you have, if there are questions that you have for guests that maybe I've announced months in advance. Let me know what you're reading, or if you want to know what I'm reading, reach out. I would love some engagement. I would love some feedback on how I'm doing. So please check us out. Thank you.